a father to the fatherless, a champion of widows. This is how God's Spirit is. This is God holiness. It is the God way to invite the lonely into families, to invite the imprisoned into freedom. I chose that text almost arbitrarily. It has something to do with some of meaning in my own life, uh, but I chose it arbitrarily because there are a million texts like it in our ancient scriptures. Because that's a theme that has always been our way. A theme that is integrated is as integrated into our religion as integrated can be. It's the theme that we've been talking about for a few weeks. We've been taking a break from our lesson um, imagining or rethinking a religion of fear, transcending a religion of fear. We'll come back to that. We'll finish that out soon. But as we've been taking these few weeks, we've been using an old English word to talk about this attribute, this dynamic, charity. If you missed the last two lessons, I'd encourage you to have a listen online. The destination to which the spiritual journey carries us. It's this word, charity. In Greek, it's the word agape. We've called it in this lesson the crown jewel of the virtues. We've spoken of it as a thing that happens to us when we awaken to, when we touch, when we live from the divine center that each one of us carries deep within us. And collectively, together, as people on this journey with one another, This word defines the task, the mission that has set before us. In Hebrew, the term is tikkun olam, to be repairers of the world, redeemers of what is broken, repairers of the breach. There's another ancient word uh, that describes us in our togetherness when we are in spiritual community together. That word is ekklesia. What it means is a group of people who have heard a call. It's a call that is always bubbling up in everyone. It is always present everywhere. But to become the called ones, we simply respond. So what that means when we gather as this group of people, we gather because we heard that interior call to walk the spiritual journey, and we responded. We got up. And we started walking. And as we did, as happens, we found one another also walking on the journey. Awakened to our deep desire, we began to pay attention. We began the two-step dance of the spiritual journey. Awakened to the deep interior spiritual desires for life and for love and for truth and for beauty, awakened to those deep interior desires for peace and for kindness and for goodness and for justice, we began to pay attention. And as we did, we started walking. And on the road, we found one another. And finding one another, we realized that we can pay attention better when we are together than we can when we are alone. Now, we're not the only ones to have found one another. It's happening all across the earth. It has happened through the millennia. And as we find one another on this journey, we find together that the journey is taking us inexorably toward this word, toward charity, toward agape. 
It's taking us toward a role that we fill on this earth to bring life to death, to bring hope to despair, to bring healing to wounds, to bring redemption to loss. When we find one another, us and every other community across the planet, we inevitably stumble onto our mission. We stumble onto the deep, primal, divine assignment to spread salt, <clears throat> to bring out the God flavors on the earth, to spread light, to bring out the God colors on the earth. I've mentioned this book in several meetings in the last several months, uh, and I think I've talked about it in the afterwards discussion, but I don't think I've mentioned it in the lesson. I was reading this book, Doing Good Better. I was reading it the day before and the evening before the election results came in, and it has been in the back of my mind since then, informing this pressing what now question that this social tumult is now pushing upon us. I can't remember if uh, the metaphor in the book goes exactly like this or this is because I've talked about it so many times and I've added stuff to it, but uh, my apologies to the author. But this is what I think the book says <laughs> this many months later. It tells a metaphor of comparison and contrast between how a drug comes to market and how charity comes to market. A drug starts with a series of small tests, first on animals, next on a small batch of humans, and the tests are run doubly blind. In other words, the person who administers the drug and the person who receives the drug, neither one of them know if they're actually receiving the drug or they're um, receiving the sugar pill. That way they can get uh, untainted results about the effectiveness of the drug. They know about the potential side effects of the drug. All these things are well known, and all these things are demonstrated before the drug goes to market when the system is working as the system should work. So before, before people invest their hopes <clears throat> and their dollars into a drug, there is demonstrated evidence that the drug will actually achieve an outcome, that it actually moves the needle in regards to an illness. Contrast that with how we invest our hopes and how we invest our energies and how we invest our dollars in doing good in charity. That is a, an approach usually much more willy-nilly than the approach to bringing a drug to market. And to demonstrate, the author tells a story about efforts to change educational outcomes uh, in Africa. So <clears throat> it was observed that educational outcomes are not going well. So, of course, let's do something. Let's do something good. Without spending much time asking African students or African teachers or African communities, with the many of efforts were mobilized around looking at bad outcomes and then looking at classrooms and quickly realizing, hey, there are no textbooks. How in the world are we going to have good educational outcomes without textbooks? So let's get some textbooks for these classrooms. Textbooks are expensive, and African schools don't have a lot of money. But here's an idea. American classrooms rotate textbooks out about every four years. They're American English. That's close enough to African English. Hey, this can work. Now, the project demanded considerable energy. Organizers had to work through the red tape that goes with most school districts and organize the gathering and then the shipping of the books, the distribution of the actual books, and after a few years of considerable effort, the textbooks arrived in the classroom, and then a year went by, and then another year went by, and then a few more. And what a disappointment. 
The needle did not move at all. Educational outcomes were no better than they had been. Now that's a bummer. But you know what? We might have missed a trick. Teachers need more education. Of course, why didn't we think of that? What good are textbooks if teachers don't know how to teach them? Well, teacher education, that's not easy either. Rural villages, distances, time, training the teachers, training the teachers of the teachers. So off we went. And some number of years go by, teachers are educated, but the needle still has not moved. Educational outcomes no different than they were. But then in some obscure little trial, interestingly, informed by much more intentional relationship with, a conversation with folks on the ground, one group runs a deworming trial, which interestingly moves the needle. In very short order, health outcomes improve, which means attendance improves, which means children's energy levels improve, which means focus and concentration improves, and educational outcomes improve. The point, the author says, is that we spend just about as much on charity in any given year as we do bringing drugs to market. One effort demonstrates effectiveness before rollout, and the other does not demonstrate effectiveness before rollout, and consequently, efforts to do good are often abysmally ineffective. And that principle is true for us as individuals when we want to do good, when we feel the interior impulse of agape that arises within us. It's true as individuals, but it's also true collectively as people, as societies, as organizations. <clears throat> I uh, don't know if you've seen this video, Poverty, Inc. If not, it's on Netflix. It's very informative, especially for us because uh, we are given this mission of being repairers of the earth. There's a lot of material in the video. It's very worth a watch. But one quick story. Before the earthquake in Haiti, electrical infrastructure was a problem already. After the earthquake, it was a bigger problem. And without electricity being steady, uh, there was a problem with streetlights. And without streetlights, given the desperation that was going on in people's lives at the time and place, there was a lot of crime going on. And so with good intention, but without very much consideration, uh, we, the American aid organizations, sent free American solar-powered streetlights to Haiti, which seems like a good thing. How could that be a problem? What is bad about that? But in the process, without trying, we drove solar-powered streetlight companies in Haiti out of business. And so consequently, some number of years later, now the streetlights that were given for free have worn out and broken, but there's no infrastructure now to begin to replace them, and there's a deficit in jobs. And American farmers subsidized to grow more rice than Americans can eat or to grow more rice than can be competitively sold overseas, sold their surplus rice to the American government, who then shipped it to Haiti for free. Again, what can be bad about that? Free food. Except that we drove the entire Haitian rice industry out of business, and now there is no work and there is no sustainable long-term economic ends to bring rice to people to feed themselves. So there's no farming jobs, and there's no solar light uh, solar street light jobs, and take that and just multiply it across multiple industries, and we realize the economy has been undercut. There are fewer jobs, and people are actually harmed 
by efforts at doing agape, efforts to do good. Now, as we've seen, if we follow Jesus, the issue of redeeming the earth is our gig. We don't get to not do it and be faithful and authentic in our tradition. But we need to do it in a way that actually moves the needle. Now, as we've said, charity happens to us as we walk the journey. This thing happens inside of us. It begins to emerge because we touch something that was always inside of us. It is the heart of the divine to do good. It's a thing that our forebears testify unanimously is in us because the Holy Spirit of God indwells us. Healing the earth is our thing. Restoring what is lost. Redeeming what is broken. It's our thing. But discernment and wisdom, these are also our thing. That's why we have the whole circle, the communal and the contemplative and the learning and the serving. <clears throat> you hear me talk about discernment a lot and you hear me talk about the thing under the thing. It's one of the essential building blocks of self-awareness and self-awareness is one of the essential building blocks of discernment. When we are looking at how shall we go forward, there must be prerequisite to taking our steps, the interior touch point of the wisdom of the divine. So you hear me talk about the thing under the thing when we talk about doing a worksheet when we practice self-awareness and self-disclosure. And if you're not familiar with that term, doing a worksheet, you can find it on our website. It's one of our core practices. You can read about it under resources there. It's a tool that we use to touch the core of our interior worlds so that we can be informed about how to bring our best selves to the work that we do every day shaping our worlds. So we look for the thing under the thing in ourselves. But we also look for the thing under the thing when we are unpacking our world and our society. Why does society do what society does? Why does religion do what religion does? Why do religious people think what religious people think? Why do we have the instincts that we have? How do those instincts shape? Uh, how are they shaped? How are they formed? And then how do we inf they inform us going forward? What's the thing under the thing? Now we have to do that work because of the way that our brains are wired. Our brains are wired for efficiency. In other words, our brains are always trying to get the maximum work done with the minimum amount of effort involved. It's a survival strategy. It's how we stayed alive on the Serengeti. But the side effect of this streamlined maximum output for minimum effort approach of our brains is that left to their own devices, our brains are going to always travel the path of least resistance. Neural pathways <clears throat> are like downhill paths. We find the things that are easy and we find the things that are effortless and we think those thoughts again and again and again and again until we've just, we always think those thoughts. They've become deeply ingrained thought habits. And one of the downhill paths, the paths of least resistance that our brains take when we hurt, when we hurt for ourselves, when we hurt for other people, is our, our brains tend to look for quick answers, quick solutions to problems to drive our pain away quickly, a quick enemy to resist, 
to drive our pain away quickly. The faster we define the problem, the faster we define the enemy, the sooner we can attack the problem, the sooner we can drive our pain away. It's just a thing that our brains do. It's a default setting. But the unintended consequence is that often we go off half-cocked. We attack enemies that are not really the enemy. We solve problems that are not really the problem. We work on solutions that are solving problems that aren't really the problem. This is why we do the practices. Discernment is essential if we're going to do agape. Discernment is essential if we are going to do good upon the earth. Discernment is essential, which means interior peace, that place from which we are able to do our discerning, is essential. So, we learn. We force ourselves to think difficult thoughts. We work hard to understand the thing under the thing. We are communal. We make ourselves walk the journey together. We bump into others who think differently than we do so that we can see what we don't see. We travel with others who will support us in the demanding and difficult journey of walking uphill when our brains just want to take the downhill approach. We are contemplative, insisting that we detach from the power of our thought habits that dictate and limit our lives. And we are serving. We insist that we get outside the box of me and my and mine and see the larger world, the world as it really is. That last one, the serving practices. <clears throat> Tell you a little bit about our community. For years and years, our community was absorbed. Just the water was up to here. It's all we could do was try and figure out what it means to be Christian. Because we were grappling with the illness that has befallen the Christian church. This is not one of the healthy times in our history. This is one of the times of toxicity in the system. It happens from time to time in history. It is our way to lose our way. But it's also our way to find our way when we've lost it. And when we are finding our way back, it is all-consuming. And for us, it was all-consuming. We were asking ourselves, what went wrong? How did it go wrong? How did our instincts get so unhealthy? How did our story become so derailed? Now, while that was going on for years and years in our community life, I would, every fall, sometime around November, I think, I would look at our community's resources. What are the dollar resources we have? What are the people resources we have? What are the skill set resources we have? And I would look at our resources and I would ask myself the question every year, what could we get done this coming year that would make our community healthier? What could we actually do with the resources we've got? And for years and years, the resources were pretty uh, uh, spare. So I would do that for years. About seven years ago, the church council started asking that question with me every year. And so every year when I would do that, I would come to the service quadrant. Now, we weren't using the circle at that time. We were talking about it using other language, but in essence, it was the service quadrant. And I would know that it was a bedrock of the Christian faith, that it is to us to be healers of the earth. Again, it's our gig. And I would know each year that we weren't doing much, And so each year I'd have a chat with God about this thing. Now it wasn't a chat with God in the way that we think of the word chat. I would really just get quiet and listen and discern and be still. And it wasn't words that I spoke to God. It wasn't even words that God spoke to me. But if it had been words, 
It was more of an inner settledness. But if it had been words, it would have been, yes, that is important, but not this year. Yes, next year, that is important, but not this year. Because again, we were really up to our ears in trying to figure out what does it mean to be Christian. But about 2013, when I came to that fall time, the conversation changed a little bit. And it was to do that, do a little bit. Yes, it is important. This year, just a bit. 2014, okay, do a little bit more. 2015, okay, do a little bit more. Thank you to the neighbor serve that formed a team that formed during that time. Thank you to the folks who worked on WIN and the food bank and the Help One Now teams. But now, it really is time. It is time for us to step into the full expression of what it means to be a Christian community, to be healers of the earth, to draw from the interior resources that have accrued to us as we have been working the circle, as our souls have been healing, as we have been practicing the other three quadrants, as the reserves have been building up in our souls so we can sustain giving ourselves away in service to something bigger than ourselves, it's time. Now let me speak to you if you're new or if you are in what is known in the spiritual journey as the wilderness unraveling the place where you are questioning everything that you've ever learned or if you have been burned out by your involvement in church or if you are experiencing whiplash because rethinking the Christian story is so demanding, there are a lot of places that we have been where it was not time for us to be fully engaged in this and that may be that that's, time for it's, that's the time that you are in right now. But if you hang around for a while, if you work the circle for a while, something does happen to us. Our souls do heal. And when we do begin to find that place, there is this inevitability about touching the divine heart. The divine heart is within you. And the divine heart is about healing the earth. So, <clears throat> for us as a community, we have capacity that we have not had in years past. We have resource that we have not had in years past. And now... It is time for us. Because that sense has been rising within me for a while, growing for these years, I've been on a quest. I've been looking, exploring. What are groups that are doing uh, things that are moving the needle and doing it effectively? I've encouraged us to be part of a network of other churches because while we have been absorbed trying to figure out how to be Christian, they were building the networks of how uh, changing the earth happens and we have something to give to them and they would have something to give to us. I've been reading a lot of books on what does doing this well mean? What does it look like? I've been taking a lot of people to lunch to ask them, what are you doing? How are you doing it? I've got to quit going out to eat so much. I really do. <clears throat> And this fall, I'm going to do another lesson after we finish out the Transcending the Religion of Fear. In the fall, I'm going to do a lesson called Revisiting Amos One Year Later. <laughs> and we're going to talk about how do we take up this mandate that's given to us. In the fall, I'm going to introduce you to several organizations. I want to do a little bit of that introduction now. I'm going to tell you about Industrial Areas Foundation. They're a coordinating group that works that work with a lot of organizations, especially churches. They've started several groups. One of them that is local to us is Durham Can. 
Durham congregations, associations, and neighborhoods. And they're starting Wake Can right now. Uh, we, there's been one initial planning meeting, Wake Congregations, Associations, and Neighborhoods. And at the initial meeting, the presenter said this, business enterprises lobby to get their concerns represented. Governmental enterprises lobby to get their concerns represented as well. But families have very little representation. And churches and community organizations are the best hope. But the churches themselves are pretty decentralized, and need help organizing together. So what Industrial Aries Foundation did in Durham was Durham can. They gathered a bunch of clergy folk together and they had them go to their congregations and do prayer and talking circles with their community and ask the question, what are the needs of the families in our city? What are the needs of people in our city? And so they came back together to report what they had discerned together as a congregation. They said, this is what we sense God nudging us to do in our city. And for some congregations, that's all they needed. Once they had started doing the discerning process, they just immediately got to work. But because several congregations were gathering together, some of them found others of like mind, and they started to work together. But collectively, as a whole, in the city, all of the churches discerned one project to undertake all of them together. And in Durham, what they discerned was that the lack of low-income housing was profoundly hurting many families in the city. And so IAF connected Durham Can with the research about what goes on if that's the problem you decide to tackle. How do you move that needle effectively? And so after they had done the research and they had found out what was going to be effective, then they gathered and they divvied up the work among the congregations and they raised the money among the congregations and they have, over these eight years, profoundly changed the situation of low-income housing in the city of Durham. And I would like us as a community to be involved in Wake Can. If you would like to do that with me, I would encourage you to get out your phone right now with a camera on it or a piece of paper and write down this date. On Thursday, June 29th, from 10 until 12.30 at Neighbor to Neighbor, which is straight down Bunt Street, uh, just down a ways, uh, there's an organization called Neighbor to Neighbor, and they're letting uh, IAF use the facility there. And so it'll be at 10 o'clock on June 29th. I'll leave that slide up there for a minute for you to snap a pic. I also went to a meeting of CBF folks in this last few weeks. They want to help churches grapple with how to bring healing to racial and economic inequity in our state. Any effort at healing our city, any effort at healing our nation is going to have to have a working understanding of the role that race plays. Because in every context, in every setting, Racial inequity is just a toxic drip that is always going into the system, always corrupting everything. If you grew up in the traditional Christian church, you might be familiar with an organization called Sojourners, and if you are, then you would know who Jim Wallace is. Jim Wallace is one of the well-known advocates for uh, Christian justice. And, if, uh, and he wrote a book recently, and he called race America's original sin. 
If we are going to be part of the healing of our world, healing the damage that is caused by and is continuing to be caused by economic inequity or uh, access inequity, we're going to have to grapple with our original sin, race. <clears throat> and it can't be done healing the earth without one being addressed by the other. We have to look at that. So this last organization that I put up here, Racial Equity Institute, it's an educational organization. They're in Greensboro, but they do seminars all across the state. And they teach how we got here. How did we get to this place? What has happened? What is now happening? What can be done? What is now being done to heal the breach? So I'm going to go to a two-day seminar. Uh, this is going to figure prominently. I'm going to explain a lot of this uh, in our fall lesson on revisiting Amos. But I'm going to go in October to a two-day training. And if you'd like to come, I would love it if you would come along. It's uh, October 9th and 10th. It's a Monday and Tuesday. I don't remember for sure if it's 9th and 10th. But the thing that I thought was ironic is that it happens on Columbus Day and then the Tuesday right afterwards. So if you would like to come and be in that, there is a registration fee for that. It's so around $200, and I think it is well worth the money. If you'd like to help be a healer of the earth, this seems like an essential first step. Come with me. So again, charity is kind of our thing. But doing it well requires discernment. Doing it well demands that we walk the spiritual journey and that we work the circle together. Doing it well means that we discern effective strategies for actually moving the needle as opposed to well-intended strategies that can actually cause harm instead of good. And so I pray that in the years before us, our community gets every bit as good at this fourth quadrant as we are the other three. I pray that we become very good at being healers of the earth. So Holy Spirit, may that be, that we become part of healing the earth, tap into the spiritual source that capacitates us, become discerners of the way forward, people who work the circle well. May we become charitable people, people of agape, people who have touched that divine life. Be that so in us, and may it flow through us. In Jesus' name, amen.